The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It's man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. Tuesday edition of the PFT PM Podcast. How's everybody doing? I want to get Sims back on here at some point when we do this, but today... Just going to be me. Maybe get Sims later this week, if not this week, next week. He's busy with his unbuttoned, and we could do a joint episode of PFTPM and unbuttoned at some point and check with him and see when he can do that. There isn't a whole lot going on today, but there was enough to justify having a conversation because, in part, the Alliance of American Football, not necessarily out of business, but suspended operations... Leaves a lot of players in limbo. I've seen some tweets suggesting that the players haven't heard anything, even as their equipment gets packed up and shipped away, which does not bode well for the equipment coming back at some point. I think they wanted to buy a little bit of time to see whether or not someone will kick in the money necessary to get through to the end of the season. You know, the AAF was fine when the season started, but a major investor backed out. That opened the door for Tom Dundon, who Charlie Ebersol and Bill Polian found to come in and ideally finance the league through multiple years of operations with a commitment of $250 million. The problem is he didn't actually kick over the $250 million, and he had the ability to walk away, and now he has. And they don't have another investor or at least they didn't, I guess they still could, lined up to come in and take this thing over moving forward. They need about $20 million to get through the rest of the season, I'm told. Dundon loses roughly $70 million by walking away, although the guy's got a lot more than $70 million, and I don't know what kind of a tax shelter or a write-off or other strategy there is here, what kind of an end game to make this this loss, something that ultimately doesn't affect his bottom line. Rich people are always looking for tax shelters. Rich people are always looking for ways to offset revenue with expenses. But 70 million is still 70 million, if that's the number. And whatever the number, Dundon apparently not willing to kick in the 20 million necessary to to get this done. So, uh, it's done, barring a miracle. Um, And we'll see how it all plays out in the coming days. If it becomes officially scrapped, ended, torn apart, over, canceled, whatever it may be. And... I don't know how I feel about it. I like more football. I wanted it to succeed. I I think there's room for it. I don't know how interested I was in it. 
like early on, I was kind of willing myself to be interested, forcing myself to watch it. But then the moment that I had a distraction, I didn't care. I didn't miss it. The weekend before free agency. And I was focused on NFL transactions and anticipating what was to come. I just kind of forgot all about the the whole AAF thing. And then the weekend after free agency began, I still forgot about it. And then was the NCAA men's basketball tournament, which I don't really care about either. But I think by then, everybody forgot about the AAF. The ratings had subsided. They weren't horrible, but they weren't what they were when it started. And now the question becomes what happens with the XFL. And coincidentally or not, on the same day that the AAF suspends operations, Vince McMahon sells another $272 million in WWE stock to fund the XFL. I mean, he is ready to do what's necessary to make this thing work. He said he's ready to spend $500 million over the first three years to get this thing off the ground. And he's going to stick with it rather than pulling the plug after one season. Easy to say that before the losses start to mount. But you have to be ready to take some short-term pain. And here's the question. Can this league stick around long enough for legalized gambling to spread to the point where there's enough natural interest in something to wager on that it will float on its own. I don't know what the magic number is for the number of states that need to have legalized gambling before we get to the point where there are enough people who are able to bet that are then looking for things to bet on that are finding football in the spring as something to bet on and then in turn betting on the XFL. I also can't help but wonder whether or not the NFL has seen enough from the performance of the AAF to decide to start its own minor league. That the AAF becomes kind of a test case where the NFL can see what the AAF can do, what a spring league can do, what the NFL could do if it does its own. Spring League, its own developmental league. And some will blame the NFLPA. I've already gotten some texts from agents saying this is all the NFLPA's fault. And some of those agents are already wired to blame the NFLPA for anything they can. And I don't think that's fair here because I don't think the NFLPA standing in the way of the AAF using slappies off the back of NFL rosters, that that was standing in the way of the AAF becoming everything it could be. I think that's a red herring. I think that is hardly the silver bullet that Tom Dundon may think that it was, unless that's just a PR move where they created this false narrative. So at the end of the day, people will say this isn't about whether or not Tom Dundon was truly committed to the AAF. This is about the NFLPA refusing to help players and costing 480 players jobs. And even if that's the right number, there's eight teams. There weren't that. There weren't 60 60 players per team? I don't know. But plenty of people thought that if this thing was going to fail without access to 
players that would be scrounging to make a an NFL roster, if you can't make it without them, you can't make it with them. That that is not going to be the thing that, that saves the day. I see that Steve Spurrier has declared the Orlando Apollos to be the AAF champions, which tells me Spurrier knows that it ain't finishing, that this suspension isn't a temporary thing, that it's over, that it's done. So I don't know. Can spring football work? Will there be an appetite for it? We have seen alternative leagues fail and fail and fail. The only thing that's hung around is the Arena Football League in various forms and fashions, in various numbers of teams, in various levels of financial success. And I don't think anybody's ever gotten rich off the Arena Football League, but it's still hanging around. And there are other indoor football leagues that are still hanging around. But an outdoor, 100-yard, open-air, alternative professional football league, I just think that it's hard to find somebody who's willing to lose the money necessary to give the thing enough time to build into whatever it can most possibly be because you may be ultimately pouring a ton of money down what is a dry hole. So I feel bad for the people who have lost their jobs. I feel bad for the people who put in the time and the effort and don't get to see this thing through. We're just two weekends away from the postseason, but the AAF, by all appearances, is no more. And we now look forward to seeing what the XFL can do if and when it gets off the ground. And it looks like it'll get off the ground. The question is, will it be able to fly? There's been a lot of talk about quarterbacks losing weight and gaining weight. Cam Newton wants to play at 235. Jameis Winston wants to play at 250. Von Miller wants to bulk up. He's added 10 pounds. He's up to 245. It's a totally different player being 245 to 235, he said. It's a totally different game. It's when you get locked up with an offensive lineman and wherever you're able to go with that at 245, you can just go a little bit further with that. So 245 is where I wanted to be. The thing is, you got to be careful because to the extent you have speed and burst, acceleration, etc., you gain weight, you may not be able to have that same burst. You think you do, but you may not. And Von Miller speaking today because the Broncos launching their offseason program. Three teams launched yesterday, Buccaneers and Browns and who am I missing? Dolphins and today the Broncos. Cortland Sutton ready to assume number one receiver role. He was the number one receiver at the end of the 2018 season because Demarius Thomas had been traded and Emmanuel Sanders was injured. Emmanuel Sanders may have something to say about giving up the number one receiver spot. I'm looking through any other news and developments from the day in the NFL since we went off air on Pro Football Talk Live. I thought this story about the issues between the 49ers and Santa Clara over Levi's Stadium. And I know the 49ers have a 40-year lease. I just 
can't imagine it lasting 40 years. If they're going to be sniping and fighting and arguing like this for the first five years of the existence of Levi's Stadium, how are they going to make it together for 40 years? And once the Raiders leave the Bay Area, could the 49ers find an alternative location and could Santa Clara say, just get the hell out of here? We don't want you. They're fighting over a Taylor Swift concert. It was one concert that became a second concert because the first one sold out. The second one didn't. And they ended up having to give away 20,000 tickets in order to ensure that there was compliance with the clause in Taylor Swift's contract that certain number of people be there. I guess the experience for her fans is fully enhanced if the stadium is close to full. So they lost $2 million on the second show. They made $3 million on the first show, but they lost $2 million on the second show. Santa Clara's mayor is complaining about that. The 49ers are complaining about Santa Clara's mayor, and they're complaining about a local curfew that says you can't have events after 10 p.m. local time on a weeknight, that that makes it harder to schedule these events. Well, they knew that going in. Isn't that something you would take care of? Wouldn't that be easier to fix than finding a municipality to kick in millions and millions and millions to build it? If they're going to kick in that kind of money, why in the hell wouldn't they waive that? You don't have to waive it for everything. You just waive it for Levi's Stadium. Or you give them X number of nights per year where they can wave the magic wand to waive it. That's easy. Getting the money's the hard part. That kind of stuff, exemptions and exceptions to local ordinances, that's easy. Just change the freaking ordinance. But that's another sticking point between Santa Clara and the 49ers over Levi Stadium. And they got 35 more years together. I hope I live long enough to see how this all plays out. If nothing else, I want to make it to 88 so I can find out whether or not the 49ers and Santa Clara ultimately resolve their differences. That's my reason for hanging around for another three and a half decades. What will happen between them? Jeez. You know, but in California, you got to be creative. And you can't be all that picky if you're the football team looking for a stadium that you don't have to pay for all of it. Stan Kroenke's paying for all of it in L.A. All of it. Public money just not available for football stadiums in California. That's why the Raiders are leaving. But the more teams go, the more valuable the teams that stay. And it would be interesting to say the least. If at some point the mood changes, if at some point the tax base changes, if at some point the revenue is there, and one of these other cities around the gigantic San Francisco Bay decides they want to lure the 49ers. And there's a way for the 49ers to get away from their lease or they just buy out of it. Maybe Santa Clara says, good riddance. Happy to see you go. Just something to keep an eye on. It is weird that the 49ers play in Santa Clara. Anybody who has ever spent any time in the Bay Area knows that it's just bizarre to think of that. That Santa Clara is a long way from San Francisco. Santa Clara is closer to Oakland. It's on the east side of the bay. It's an hour away, minimum. 
Eric DaCosta had his pre-draft press conference. He called it a liar's lunch. And of course it is. Everything about this process is lying. Anybody who tells the truth is giving up potentially critical strategic advantages. People are confused about what the Giants are doing. That's what the Giants want right now. The Giants don't want to have a sign in their front yard saying we're taking a quarterback at six or we're taking a pass rusher at six or we're taking this guy at six. Because everybody drafting behind you is trying to guess what you're going to do. And if they think you're going to take a guy that they want and it's worth it to them to get him, then they may jump you to get the guy they want. It's that simple. And I know it gets frustrating because we all want to know what's going on. But for the team, number one, you keep your mouth shut in order to get the guy that you want. Number two, you keep your mouth shut so you can say that the guy you got was the guy you wanted. So there's two major reasons for not tipping your hand. Get that guy you want and secure that ability to say to your fans, we succeeded. And the best way to do that is if you trade down and still get that guy that you wanted, or at least you can claim with a straight face, we traded down and we still got the guy we wanted. We won the draft. Doesn't matter if you don't win a football game. Football games aren't played until September. We won the draft, baby. Buy more tickets. Buy more jerseys. Get excited. We won something. We may not win a single game all year, but we won something. So I don't know what the Giants are going to do, and I don't know how good they're going to be this year. Sims and I did a draft today of the teams least likely to make it to their projected Vegas win totals, and the Giants are at six, and Sims took them as one of his, that they're going to be under that win total, and they very well may be. I don't know. The, I just don't know. And this whole Eli Manning thing, it's just weird. Now, again, it already was weird, and the confusion about what they're going to do with pick number six creates even more weirdness because there is this vague sense that maybe they will pass on a quarterback, and maybe they will implement the Kansas City model next year, not this year. Saw Chris Harris wasn't at the first day of the Broncos workouts. No big deal. Guys send a message, but they have the right to stay away. And if a team wants to ensure that a maximum number of players will be at the offseason workouts, you end up tying a huge amount of money to showing up. The Packers currently do that. Very significant off-season workout bonuses. And for most off-season workout bonuses, you got to be there for 90% or something like that. So you can't miss many before you blow that money. And I remember the days when some teams would maybe have 50% participation. It really was hit or miss. And then the bad teams were like, well, look, the good teams, their players are showing up. We need our players to show up. And there were times where coaches would say things that they shouldn't say, suggesting that the, vo the voluntary workouts weren't voluntary. I remember when Thomas Jones stayed away from Bears offseason workouts. When he came back, they, they made him number three on the depth chart, which violates the spirit of the voluntary nature of the workouts. But, you know, for a lot of guys, hey, if you're not there... You do lose status. You do lose standing. If somebody else is there and they're getting the job done and they're looking good, especially when it's OTA time, 
we feel better about this guy based upon what we've seen from him in these t-shirt and shorts workouts than the guy who isn't here. I mean, if you're an established starter and you got a big contract, you're going to waltz back in and be the number one guy. But I think that's where a lot of the pressure comes. It's If you want to play, if you want to have a chance to play, if you want to have a chance to make the team, you better be there in the offseason. That's why, you know, from time to time, I argue that if players really want to show the NFL that they have power, just don't show up for the offseason workouts. Work to rule is what the term is, where a unionized workforce does the absolute positive bare minimum. And you're going to have a hard time getting players to not show up when those players know, I got an uphill climb anyway to make it to the 53-man roster. If I am not here as part of some broader statement that the unionized workforce is making to management, I got no shot. Yeah, hey, hey, veterans, you want to stay away? Good, yeah. Fight the power and give me a chance to prove that they can rely on me, not you. That's why whenever I've suggested that players consider this as a way to send a message, they just need to have the quarterbacks stay away. Good luck having OTAs without quarterbacks. And I think it would be easier to get the quarterbacks to not show up. Although all it takes is one guy. If there's four on the depth chart, all it takes is one to say, screw you guys. I got a family to feed. I don't want to sell insurance. Wow. Russell Wilson tells the Seahawks he wants a deal by April 15. This legitimizes the idea that when he was on Jimmy Fallon a few weeks ago, he was sending a message that the time has come to make him the highest paid player in the NFL and see if he doesn't get the contract he wants year to year is the way to go 120 million over three years for 2020 21 2022 he's got a ton of leverage but I just see that Shereen Williams is going to be posting that Russell Wilson has told the Seahawks he wants his deal by April the 15th What do the Seahawks do here? What do they do? Do they make him the highest paid player in the NFL right now? $33.6 million per year in new money? Let's crunch the numbers here. Let's figure out what it would take. Hang on. Let's do all this in real time. I wasn't planning to talk about this, but frankly, I didn't have many plans to talk about anything today other than the AAF. This has been a little meandering for the last 20 minutes. Let's keep meandering. I'm pulling up the Russell Wilson contract information. Here we go. This is courtesy of SpotRack. This year, he is due to make $17 million. He's got a cap number of $25.286 million. See, that comes from the $17 million base salary plus prorated signing bonus 6.2 plus a restructuring bonus they did to create some cap space a few years ago of 2.086. You add the three together, it's 25.286. You multiply that by 1.2 because he'll be entitled to a 20% raise over his cap number for 2020 if they use the franchise tag. That's $30.34 million. So... He would make $30.34 million next year under the tag. That's an important number. 
in 2021, he'd make 36.4. So that's 36.4 plus 30.34 plus 17. He would make 83 million over the next three years if he goes year to year. That works out to 27.9 million. That's the bare minimum to cover the next three years. And I would want that fully guaranteed at signing. 83 million minimum fully guaranteed at signing to cover the next three years. Otherwise, it's not worth it. Go year to year. And then the kicker is 2022, the fourth year out, because that number that I said, and let's do this again, 36.4 million by rule, the third year of the tag that's 44% bump, 52.42 million. So 52.42 million plus 83, uh, 52 plus 83 is 135 million over four years. 135 divided by four is 33.75. So if I'm Russell Wilson, I don't know that I would want all of it fully guaranteed. But I would want the next three years fully guaranteed. That's $83 million. But I'd want a payout that would get me to that 150 What was the number? $135 million over the next four years, 33.75. The current high watermark is 33.5. That's what I would want. Now, for new money, it would be worth more than that. See, the new money, the new money, old money analysis, that always complicates this and most fans don't give a shit but the agents do the teams do the players do see with russell wilson you'll hear about the new money analysis because he's due to make 17 million right now so it's the value for the years beyond 2019 the new years on the contract you subtract 17 million and a year from the total value you're going to end up having a higher new money average if you leave 17 and this year in there and you throw money on top of it when you divide it by the total number of years in the deal it's going to be a lower number than if you just focus on the new money i think i just gave myself a headache i hope i hope they i hope that made sense so russell wilson holds all the cards here because if he wants to go year to year he puts the Seahawks in a very difficult spot in 2022 where they have to choose between $52 million or letting him hit the open market. Or the one last-ditch scenario would be to go transition tag. So $36.4 million for 2021. Transition tag is a 20% raise. $43.6 million would be the number necessary to secure a right of first refusal. And maybe that's what they would do. That chops down that $52 million to a more manageable number for 2022. And who knows where the salary cap will be by then. But that's the analysis. It's very, very simple. This is a simple deal to negotiate. The question is, do the Seahawks want to commit to it? And who's making that call? Paul Allen passed away during the season. His sister has been running the team. We haven't heard anything about plans to sell. Russell Wilson, the most important player on that roster, but do they use him enough to justify paying him $33.75 million per year in total value on a long-term deal? Dwayne Brown, Seahawks left tackle, recently said, a lot of people would like to see Russell Wilson throw it more, so would I. Not going to be an easy one. 
Not going to be an easy one at all. All right. Uh, let's answer some of your questions, and who knows what else is going to pop up before we sign off. But uh, I'll be writing more and talking more about this Russell Wilson situation. And thank you, Russell, for giving us something that we can talk about tomorrow on PFT Live. These next couple of weeks always kind of tough. Before we be- begin the final push toward the draft, you can have a little bit of a lull. So thank you. Thank you. We appreciate you, Russell Wilson, for giving us something we can sink our teeth into. All right, here comes the answers to your questions. I went with the Fonzie gif in the Cunningham's living room when he plops into the chair because I saw that Henry Winkler was on Dan Patrick's show today and talking about his time as Arthur Fonzarelli. He picked up that that vibe, that persona from Sylvester Stallone. They were both in the Lords of Flatbush. It was a crappy movie from the early 70s, but... The Fawn's demeanor, the Fawn's way, is kind of a Sylvester Stallone. So you can see Sylvester Stallone at the heart of two of the most iconic characters of the 1970s, Arthur Fonzarelli and Rocky Balboa. But let me tell you, the Fawn's was huge in the early 70s. Back in the early 70s, let's see if you can picture this. Now, for those of you out there that are in my demographic, it'll be more nostalgia than awakening. But obviously, I know it sounds hard to believe, but there were no cell phones. There was no Internet. You may have heard that. Your grandpa may have told you about the days back before the Internet. There was no cable TV, per se. Now, you could get cable TV, but it wasn't really cable TV like it is today. It was cable but it just gave you a really good connection for the local channels that you otherwise would be trying to pick up through your rabbit ears. And you got extra local channels from the broader area that you lived in if you had cable. So I would get, I grew up in Wheeling, West Virginia, 60 miles from Pittsburgh. I would get the local NBC affiliate before it became a CBS affiliate, WTRF TV, Channel 7. You would get that with or without cable. You lived close enough. There was a Steubenville CBS affiliate that flipped to NBC when WTRF flipped to CBS or whatever it was. Whatever. WTOV, which was WSTV, before it was WTOV. Anybody in Eastern Ohio who remembers that, you win a cookie. It was WSTV, became WTOV. And WTOV and WTRF flipped their affiliations at one point. And I think it was WTRF was NBC and went to CBS. WSTV slash WTOV was CBS and went to NBC. But you also got Channel 4 out of Pittsburgh, WTAE. Channel 2 out of Pittsburgh, now WTAE, ABC affiliate, still is. Channel 2 out of Pittsburgh, KDKA, CBS affiliate. And Channel 11 out of Pittsburgh, an NBC affiliate. WPXI was WIIC. So you got all those channels. So you had options when the network programming wasn't on. You had options for local news. You had options for the syndicated shows in the late afternoons, Hogan's Heroes or whatever. WPGH-TV out of Pittsburgh became a Fox affiliate when Fox came around. Before that, it was just independent. It was syndicated stuff all the time. It was great. I remember watching Batman. I remember 
rushing home from school to watch the reruns of the Batman series with Adam West in the mid-70s. So that was what you had. It wasn't just three channels, but it was three networks. You had more channels. Oh, and you also had, we had two different PBS stations. We had Channel 8, which was the West Virginia PBS station out of Morgantown. And we had 13, which was the PBS channel out of Pittsburgh. But that was it. It ended at 13. And I remember that. I would cycle through. We had a, a remote control that, that literally was a clicker. They called it a clicker because it clicked. And whatever the frequency was that was created by the clicker, we had this stupid bird cage that didn't have a live bird in it. It was a decorative bird cage with a fake bird in it. And my mom found out, she actually thought the house was haunted, because when she would clean that stupid-ass bird cage and move the chain that was hanging from the ceiling attached to the bird cage, it would cause the TV channels to change. It was the damnedest thing. So every once in a while, I'd take that chain off and I'd just jangle it around and make it change the channels just because it was fun. Hey, check this out. And it freaked my mom out when it first happened. So anyway, you had channel two, channel, what was on channel three? I don't think anything was on channel three. Channel four, channel five, six was WPGH, seven was a, I think it was a second feed of WTRF, eight was PBS, nine was STV, 10, I can't remember what 10 was. Boy, this is really scintillating information, I know. There was like a Youngstown affiliate that we picked up, too, on this cable that we had. 11 was the Pittsburgh NBC affiliate, WPXI, WIIC. 12 was another one of these low-level, like, Youngstown-type affiliates. 13 was the, the PBS out of Pittsburgh. And then that was it. It was Wilderness. But you had few choices. I'm eventually going to get back to my point here, I think. Now I know how I felt when I was a kid. My grandpa would go on and on about shit that I didn't care about. There weren't many things in the evening that you could watch. It was ABC, CBS, NBC, period. Unless you wanted to watch some syndicated stuff on WPGH or PBS, which we never watched at night. And I'd watch it in the daytime, Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers, etc. when I was a little kid. But in the evening, who cares? Symphony, who cares? <laughs> Does anybody still care? Is there ever anything on PBS that you watch now? When was the last time you watched PBS? In the evening. When was the last Ken Burns documentary anybody gave a crap about? I think that may have been it. Anyway, support your local PBS station. Um, but at night, it was three options. And Happy Days was as compelling, as intriguing, as popular as any show ever was in the 70s. The world stopped spinning when it was time to turn on ABC to watch Happy Days. Tuesday nights, I think it was at 8, 8 or 8.30. I think I think eventually I moved it to 8, so it would grab a huge audience and then lead into whatever was after that. But the Fonz, man, the, the Fonz, and, and they taped it before a live studio audience instead of the sitcoms that would have the laugh track so you could figure out what was supposed to be funny. And I think Happy Days was one of the pioneers when it came to putting a, a truly live studio audience in place. And like the Fonz would come out and it would be like, he was, it's like a, I remember every once in a while Kramer would enter in Seinfeld and they would like start clapping. It was like that times 10 for a while with the Fonz. Biggest star, biggest character, bigger than life. 
So anyway, that's that's why I picked the 15 minute explanation. That's why I picked Fonzie today. Let's answer some of your questions. PFTPM Posse asking an important question about that Sean McVay, Cliff Kingsbury, Patrick Mahomes dinner that we spoke about on PFT Live and also PFTOT. Now, McVay pranked Kingsbury by having a mutual friend pretend to be Roger Goodell. That McVay changed the name in his contacts of that friend to Roger Goodell, and the person who was posing as Roger Goodell said, I can't believe you guys are having dinner with Patrick Mahomes. That's a tampering violation. You're losing your first-round draft picks. And it was funny, but the fact that Kingsbury fell for it tells me he doesn't know what the rules are. And it tells me he was thinking that maybe we were flying too close to the sun on wings of pastrami. And just the idea that two NFL head coaches would be having dinner with the most popular player in the NFL right now who plays for neither of their teams, there's something about that that if I was the owner of the Kansas City Chiefs or the coach of the Chiefs, I'd just be concerned about it. So, the question from the PFTPM Posse account. What can be done about the McVeigh Mahomes Kingsbury recent dinner? I'm assuming the NFL and or the commission can't do anything about three friends getting together for dinner, but the Chiefs may want them to try, especially after the Jeremy Macklin fiasco a couple of years ago. Now, the Macklin fiasco resulted in the Chiefs losing a third-round pick because during the 48-hour negotiating window, when you're allowed to talk to an, a player's agent, a player who is due to become a free agent, you can negotiate with his agent, You can't negotiate directly with the player. The Chiefs did that with Jeremy Macklin. They talked to Jeremy Macklin. You're not allowed to talk to the player. They did. They got busted, and they lost a third-round draft pick. Now, in this case, there's no evidence of any tampering, but if you allow these kinds of meetings and dinners and conversations, how do you know that there isn't at some point? If someone chooses to abuse this, Even if it isn't in an effort to get the player onto your own team, how do you ensure that Cliff Kingsbury doesn't say to Patrick Mahomes, who played for him at Texas Tech, man, they're screwing you over here. They really are. They're only offering you $32 million a year? That's how much they're offering you? Oh, man. I wouldn't take that. I mean, think about it. Let's just swap out Patrick Mahomes for Russell Wilson in light of what we talked about earlier today. Now, Wilson plays in the same division as the teams that McVeigh and Kingsbury coach. But still, hey, just three guys getting together for dinner. You would be very alarmed if it was Russell Wilson instead of Patrick Mahomes having dinner with the Cardinals and Rams head coach. So why is it different just because they're in the same division? Why does it why does it matter? I mean, the way I look at it, there is one team and 31 other teams. And I believe that true fans of one NFL team hate the other teams and don't want their star players consorting with the enemy. Now, it's one thing to have friends who play on other teams, but friends who coach other teams and you have relationships with those guys, how do you police that the line isn't being crossed? It just doesn't look good. The combination of the fact that Kingsbury actually fell for it, unless he is one of the most gullible coaches who ever lived, and the fact that there's just kind of a nonchalance in talking about it. There's just something about it. I can't put my finger on it, but there is something about it that bothers me. And 
I think it's because if I were the general counsel for the Rams or the Cardinals, I would be concerned if I knew that this kind of casual, nonchalant communication was happening with one of the most important players in the NFL who isn't under contract to my team. So I don't think anything comes of it. It's probably not uncommon. There's probably plenty of communications that happen between coaches with one team, assistants and head coaches, and players with another team, especially because players move around so much now, coaches move around. But man, it's a risky proposition to be having those relationships and having those conversations because the more you do it, the looser you get, the more familiar you get. Like with anyone else, the more you talk to somebody, the more you interact with somebody, the greater the chance you're eventually going to get to that topic that you're not supposed to be talking about. As that person gets closer and closer to that contract that he expects to get from his current team. PFTPM Posse with Ravens GM Eric DeCosta calling it what it is, liars luncheon. And we all know that these are BS. Why do we pay so much attention as a football society? Because something is better than nothing. Because the media consuming public hates a vacuum. We want something. Even if we want to be able to call BS on what is said, we would rather have something that we could call BS over nothing. And it's all part of that exercise that teams go through to create the impression that they are accessible and open with the fan base. So you will see team after team after team having these pre-draft press conferences. And you just have to be careful what you say. And there's an art to it. It's the Nick Saban way. Say something, and ultimately, when you go back and read what the guy said, you realize he didn't say anything. Another one from PFTPM Posse. Shouldn't Tom Dunn go ahead and let the AAF play out the postseason and see what happens there, especially since some of the games are or were going to be aired on three-letter networks closer to prime time? It seems like it would be worth playing it out. It's $20 million. Are you going to make $20 million? I don't know that these networks were paying much, if anything to the AAF. This isn't the NFL. This is the AAF. I think that it was the mere exposure that was valuable to the AAF, and that was what they were getting in return. I don't know that they got much money from these networks. And now CBS has a hole it's got to fill on Saturday afternoon. So it looks like it's done. It looks like it's over. I see that there's a statement from Bill Polian. I'll pull it up before we wrap this thing up today and see what Bill Polian has to say. He's one of the co-founders. And as I understand it, he wasn't, he's never happy about anything. He, as I understand it, wasn't happy about what went down today with the AAF. Oh, Tyler Furness suggesting a PFTPM posse get together in Dallas, Texas. Dallas, Texas. Because three of the PFTPM posse OGs will be there then. July 5th to 8th. Two observations. First, I'm going to be out of town then in the opposite direction of Dallas from where I live. Second, I ain't coming to Dallas. I'm sorry. I don't want to do it in my house, but I'd like to at least do it within, oh, I don't know, 150 miles of my house. Pittsburgh, maybe we can talk about it. I ain't coming to Dallas for a PFTPM get-together. I, I apologize, but I'm just not doing that. I would be far more inclined to say, let's get together in Morgantown 
at least somewhere within the boundaries of the state of West Virginia. I can't host it, but I also ain't going to Dallas for it. So I appreciate the suggestion, Tyler. I love you. I'm glad you're doing better, but I ain't coming to Dallas. (laughs) Next one. You can hang out with Shireen. Shireen will hang out with you guys in Dallas, July 5th to 8th. I'm sure she would love to do it. She may end up taking over as the president and CEO of the PFTPM Posse if she were to do that. Sean Alvishire, is it a coincidence that as soon as Johnny Manziel joined the AAF, it folded? Johnny Manziel killed the AAF. There's nothing funny about it. The real Forno, Tyler Furness, how much of the failure of the AAF will factor into how you view the XFL? I'm going to be skeptical about any of these leagues. Any of them. Will the owners of these leagues be willing to piss money away long enough to have a chance to be successful when there's no guarantee they're going to be successful? Case D's 13, can you please break down Tom Dundon's investment? Did he really lose $70 million? How much of that can really be used as a tax write-off? As always, thank you. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how high-level tax law works. For me, it's enough just to worry about my 1040. But if you have revenue from businesses you own and you have losses from businesses you own and you pay taxes based upon your total gains and losses, then you can break it all down. You apply it to your tax bracket. And maybe there's a way to say that $70 million that was lost with the AAF ends up reducing tax burden. You ultimately lose a lot less than that. And maybe, depending upon how much money you make elsewhere and how creative your accountants are, you end up showing, on paper, no actual loss. But I don't know. I never practice tax law. I don't do my own taxes. I'm not an accountant. I used to be great with math, but those kinds of things drive me crazy. I was meeting with my accountant a few weeks ago. And he was explaining to me that something we're doing with the Football Talk LLC to convert the form of the business in order to take advantage of the tax laws that were changed in 2018. We're doing that for 2019. And I I, I used to be the kind of guy who, when someone was explaining something to me that I didn't understand, I would just sit there and smile and nod like Homer Simpson and just wait for it to be over with. Now, if I'm in a setting like that, I just say, you lost me. I'm sorry. I don't understand what you're talking about. And he would start it again. And like after 30 seconds, I'd say, oh, you lost me. I don't know what you're talking about. And eventually he was like, well, you're doing this on purpose. Like, I'm just telling you, I can't focus on this because it quickly exceeds the extent of what I know. And once we get into shit that I don't know, I can't stay focused on it. I sit here and I start thinking about things I do know and things that I would rather be doing than listening to this. So whatever it is we're doing. And my attitude toward taxes, it's very simple. Like there's a lot of stuff I could be doing, especially because I work at home. And my accountants told me in the past, well, you know, you take the square footage of the room where you do your work and you can take a percentage of your internet bill and your electricity and your heating and you, you know, because you have a home office, you can do that. I say, I don't want to do any of that. I don't want to do any. Well, why don't you want to do that? Why? why? You could pay less in taxes. Here's why I don't want to do it. I don't want to play any games. I don't want to get close to the line. What I'd like to be able to do if they ever show up and audit me is say, Hey guys, look, I've always paid more than I should. And I haven't tried to play any games. I don't do the write-off for a home office. I don't want 
to ever be in a position where I have to sweat out whether or not I'm paying enough. I would much rather pay a little bit too much than have to worry about shaving off that little bit here and a little bit there. So if they ever show up with a microscope and they try to shove it up your ass to figure out whether or not you're on the wrong side of any of these deductions, exemptions, and all these other things that confuse me, I want to be able to say, guys, look, I give it all to my accountant and I say, don't play any games, play it straight, and let's go do this. So I don't know. Long story short, I don't know. I could have just said, I don't know. On tour forever, any chance of the AF working with the XFL in a merger or advisory capacity? I mean, I guess there could be jobs for the AAF guys. I mean, it was Dick Eversall and Vince McMahon who did the XFL. I don't know what damage has been done to their relationship since Dick's son is competing now with the XFL or was competing with the XFL. But maybe there's a spot for Charlie Eversall as part of the XFL. Although a lot of the jobs are already filled. Oliver Lux, the commissioner. I don't know what Charlie Eversall would do. And at one point when the XFL was growing and the AAF was playing and starting to sputter, I had heard that maybe there was an effort by the AAF to get the XFL to merge. I don't know if that's true. But, you know, these cash issues for the AAF aren't new. Tom Dundon bailed them out once. And then Tom Dundon steps aside. And for now, there's nobody to take over. On tour forever, do you think the AAF just underestimated the amount of money it would take to run the league, or was the whole endeavor mismanaged? Now, I, I think that they properly estimated what it would take, and they were on track, and they were meeting their goals, and they expected it to take a while. Once the investor pulled out that opened the door for them to go after Dundon, they thought they had it figured out. They thought Dundon was all in. But Dundon got his head wrapped around this idea that they needed to have back-of-the-roster players from the NFL in order to keep this thing afloat. And I don't know that that would have made a damn bit of difference. I mean, ideally, what you want is players with name recognition. You don't want the fourth-string quarterback. You want the second-string quarterback. And I know that the NFLPA was concerned that they've already fought and scratched and clawed for these guys to have less exposure during the offseason, they don't work as hard as they did. But, you know, if you're, let's look at it this way. If you're a backup quarterback, and what was the number? 16 teams had their starting quarterbacks start all 16 games this year. If you're a backup quarterback and you played in only X number of games or took X number of snaps, why aren't you available to go start in the XFL or the AAF? Isn't that the best way to do that? Put the backup quarterbacks, the number two quarterbacks in these other leagues. Now, the problem is the backup quarterback is an important member of the team from the NFL standpoint, because if your starter gets injured, you need your backup. And if your backup blows out an Achilles tendon playing in the AAF or the XFL or whatever the next FL is, you're screwed. And the whole idea of a developmental league for quarterbacks, it makes sense. If there's a way to develop quarterbacks, fine. But as it relates to the rest of the rosters, I don't think the NFL cares. Because ultimately, there are more players than there are jobs. I made this point last week as it relates to the union. Why does the union want to promote a developmental league that will allow the cheapest players on an NFL roster to be better suited to compete for jobs with veterans who are making a hell of a lot more? So, hey, it's successful. We've developed this guy who's due to make peanuts this year. Hey, yeah, he gets a job. Oh, they let the guy go that's supposed to make twice as much. Oh, well. <laughs> Sucks for you.
when there's only 53 jobs for 32 teams, the developmental aspect doesn't work. It only works if you're lifting the overall quality of play by developing quarterbacks. That's the one area where there aren't enough good players to go around. All right. At the real Forno, could the NFL send the AFC and NFC title games to neutral sites to try and make more money? The NCAA tournament plays all their games neutral site. Maybe the NFL does the same with its final four. That's an interesting thought. But here's the problem. I mean, unless you are playing the AFC game in an NFC stadium or the NFC game in an AFC stadium, there's a chance you're still going to have home field advantage. Now, for a Super Bowl, we've never seen that happen. Eventually, it will. I kind of, I like the idea. I'm trying to think of reasons why it won't work because I'd like to think the NFL has thought of it and decided not to do it. Do you fill up a stadium if the NFC championship game is played in Green Bay and the Packers aren't in it? Do you fill up the stadium? Do you fill up the stadium if it's the Seahawks and the Rams playing in the NFC Championship game at MetLife Stadium. Do you feel it? I don't know. Maybe you do. It's something to think about. I'm intrigued by that. But, man, I'm intrigued by it. I want to think about that some more before. I'm trying to find arguments against it. I can't think of one other than the risk that you play it in a city. Now, what do you do? Do you play cold weather? Do you play warm weather? Is it the same as the Super Bowl destination where you want to take the elements out of it? I think the idea of working for the home field advantage as the best team in the conference, you play the game on your turf, literally, in your elements. There's something to be said for that. I don't think the NFL would ever go for it. But if there's a way to make those games even bigger than they already are, more profitable than they already are, I'm intrigued by that. I Again, I don't think the NFL would ever do it, but I'm intrigued by it. At the CJ Newman, can we please find a way to get Steve Young on the podcast? I know you said you had a beef with him in the past, but he's my favorite QB of all time, and I would love to hear an interview with him. I don't, I can't remember what beef we had. I didn't like the fact there was the the story, the profile of him where he doesn't really like football and he just does Monday night football because having that platform makes it easier for him to get people to pay money for this venture capitalist thing that he has. I, I, I don't know. Maybe we get Phil and Steve Young together to hash out the whole laissez-faire thing. At the CJ Newman, who was better in their prime, Joe Montana or Tom Brady? Hmm. Hmm. We know when you look at Tom Brady's prime, Tom Brady's prime actually, you could argue his prime came in the window between their third Super Bowl win and their fourth Super Bowl win. Because they went ten years between Super Bowl wins, and that was right in the heart of Tom Brady's career. Now, you could say he's still in his prime. You could say his prime happened in 2014. But really, 2004, or his prime started in 2014. 2004 to 2014, they didn't win a Super Bowl. And you could argue those were his best years. And what was Joe Montana doing in his prime? He was winning Super Bowls. All I know is this. Jerry Rice was a great receiver, but at the same time, 
I never saw him have to reach or lunge or jump for a ball. I'm sure he had to at some point. But, man, I remember watching a lot of those 49ers games where it was Joe Montana delivering that ball right between the numbers in stride. In their prime, in their prime, if we could agree on a definition of their prime, there's a chance that we would agree on a definition that resulted in me saying Joe Montana. Buffalo Guy 83 with the most important question of the day. What's my favorite type of ice cream? I, I just like ice cream. Now, there are certain types I don't like, but it's a short list. Like, if I'm passing by the frozen goods section at the store and all the ice creams are there, it, it isn't a matter of me saying no way in hell, right? It's just a question of what I'm in the mood for. It's kind of like pizza. You really can't go wrong with ice cream. Now, now something with like, like not toasted coconut, but just like raw coconut. Did they make ice cream like that? I probably wouldn't like that. But most ice creams I like. And I, I, it's like whatever. My favorite ice cream. Here's the answer to the question. My favorite kind of ice cream is whatever's in the freezer right now. Right now it's vanilla. That's my favorite ice cream because it's here. I don't have to go get it. Gears of Ted, do the Blue Bud teams like the Steelers and the Giants rely too much on their legacy and reputation, which blinds them to how bad some of their decisions are, like sticking with Eli forever? Look, I, I'm a firm believer that the Steelers have allowed this three coaches in 50 years thing to become part of their identity to the point where the head coach isn't worried about getting fired. And I think you need to be worried about getting fired in order to be as good as you can be as a coach. To be as effective as you can be, you have to have a healthy fear that you could be fired. And in New York, is there a fear that Eli Manning's going to get benched? We saw them try to do it. And what happened? The fans revolted. Would they revolt now? I don't know. But it's a weird vibe with the Giants. This idea of maybe Eli Manning in 2020, that, that is just bizarre to me. Boosh 16, what do you think the Browns can get in a trade for Duke Johnson? Well, when you look at the fact that the Bears got a sixth-round pick that can become a fifth-round pick next year for Jordan Howard, not that much. Okay, I'm skipping through because a lot of these are repetitive things I've already discussed about. What do we have here? Panthers, Austria. Wouldn't the NFLPA be better advised to start negotiations with the XFL to have a deal in place to play football in case owners lock them out? After the CBA expires, that would be real leverage, even worth paying the XFL millions up front just to make the point. Look, I kind of like this because this meshes with something I've been saying about the NFLPA. In order to truly fight fire with fire here, because it's one thing to be willing to go without revenue, and the owners are far more willing to go without revenue than the players are. You need to be willing to generate revenue as well. So if the players go on strike and the NFL hires replacement players. The players need to have a place where they can play and generate money and get paid. Now, it needs to be enough money to justify the physical risk of suffering an injury that gets you not paid when the strike ends. Because I have a feeling that if you tear your ACL playing in an alternative league at a time when you're on strike from the NFL, your NFL team is going to choose when placing you on the non-football injury list to not pay you. But could the XFL provide the infrastructure? Could it be a joint venture between the XFL and the NFLPA to play games during the duration 
of a strike when the NFL is playing games. Now, the problem is some of these XFL stadiums are also NFL stadiums, and that could be... See, here's the problem. Anybody who decides to stick its finger in the eye of the NFL is going to have a problem doing business with anyone who does business with NFL teams. Like, if the XFL would do a joint venture with the NFLPA during a strike or a lockout, you're probably not going to televise those games on any network that televises NFL games or aspires to in the future. And that's where the bulk of your revenue is going to come from. So with a limited universe of networks in position to televise football games, you're not going to make the money you could to make it worth the while. But there's something there to kick around. Something there to kick around. All right, I need to wrap this up soon. Let's see what else we have here. Nick Tom Fullery, can I co-host PFTPM this summer? We'll drive to West Virginia, bring bacon for the pup and a bottle of bourbon. Can't be more risky than putting Sims ass on the air every day. I kind of agree with that. Although Sims Sims is is pretty good. At first, how's this Sims guy going to be? I don't know. He's pretty good. All right, let's see what else we have here. Nick Estrom, you mentioned the Seattle Green Bay pass interference wrong call, the fail Mary from 2012. Doesn't that prove the argument of terrible calls like Saints-Ram only happening once in 100 years completely wrong? Kind of a different situation, but the same premise. Could have been, oh, Aaron Rodgers, second quarterback, if the call was made correctly. Or second Super Bowl, rather, if the call was made correctly. What they're talking about once in every 100 years isn't a bad call. It's a bad call happening in a spot where it undermines a championship or a berth in the championship game. There will still be bad calls. Oh, here's a good question from Toddster1224. During your interview last summer with Charlie Ebersole, we made it sound like travel costs would be no issue between cities. I'm curious how much they spent on travel compared to what was expected. And look, I've had people connected to the NFL tell me, we told them, cluster all these teams together geographically to cut down on travel expenses and to enhance rivalries. Because I... Charlie was a little dismissive or a lot dismissive when I said, well, you know, you got teams in San Diego and teams in Florida and, oh, we can afford travel. Remember that? Oh, that won't be an issue. No, this is, you know, we're fully funded. And I'm not saying that they would have been able to get through this first year if they weren't taking their teams and their staffs from San Diego to Florida or San Diego to Texas or here. If they were all, if there were eight teams that were all regionally located, but there's something to be said for that. A re- maybe maybe that's one of the key ingredients. For one of these leagues to work, it has to start as truly regional. So you, you, you break the country into quadrants, and you launch with eight teams in the southeast quadrant. And then if that works, you put more teams in the northeast quadrant, put another eight teams there. And if that works, you put eight teams in the northwest, eight teams in the southwest, something like that. But I would start, if I were doing this, I would make an, 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 a, not an X like a, you know, a grid, right? Uh, you know, uh, uh, what am I looking for? What am I, you know, a vertical line and a horizontal line. And I would put the first eight teams in that Florida, Georgia, Carolinas, Mississippi, Tennessee, Louisiana area. Maybe Texas. Maybe I'd shift it over a little bit. I'd probably want more teams in Texas and fewer teams in Florida, all due respect. I, I would want to have... Two or three teams in Texas, a team in Louisiana, a team in Tennessee, a team in, I don't know, Oklahoma, Arkansas. You want to be sure that the people are going to respond like they responded in San Antonio. 
That's part of the challenge. All right. That was a good question, though. Dean Osborne, 42, wants to know if Mrs. Florio enjoyed the Kiss concert. I think she did. I think she did because she didn't say she didn't. And any of us who have been in married or committed relationships for extended period of time know that when you're not getting negative feedback, that means everything's good. I think she enjoyed it. All right. I should probably wrap that up on that point. Let's see what else we have. Gears of Ted, will Peter King be back on PFT Live at some point? He will be on on Friday of this week because we are having Big Cat and Chris Sims together on Wednesday. It'll be Sims on Thursday, Peter King on Friday. Here's one. Knowles the Spark D. As a lawyer, was there a time in court you realized you were on the wrong side and how did you combat it to best serve your client? I mean, I had cases when, when you work for a firm, and you are defending corporate interests in litigation, you can't pick and choose what case you take. You can't say no, especially if it's a client that sends a lot of work to your firm. So there will be cases that you don't really believe in, but you have to take them because if you say no and they take that case to another firm, then maybe another case goes to that firm and another case goes to that firm. And before you know it, that client has changed firms. So, yeah, there were plenty of times that I had cases I didn't believe in. In that case, what you do is you begin the process as early as you can of convincing the client that they need to view it objectively and they need to consider how best it can be resolved. And you're doing your work in that case. If you get it resolved and if you end up spending a lot less of the client's money than it would have cost if you'd gone to trial and lost. You always have to find a way to be objective with your client and set your client's expectations without making it look like you don't believe. And I've had, oh, oh, are you saying you don't believe in the case? No, I'm telling you what can happen. Look, I can't pick the facts. I can make the best arguments possible, but you need to understand that this is the way it can go. And it's probably better to go ahead and settle the case. And it's hard when you're a zealous advocate, it's hard to step away from that. Because when you are zealously advocating and your client's there watching you zealously advocate, the client thinks you actually believe that. And then you get into a setting where you have to say to the client, okay, that guy that was saying all those things was being your advocate. Now I have to be your counselor. And I have to tell you why I think you need to settle this case. Not the easiest thing to do. And I don't miss it. It's been 10 years as of July 1 when I jumped on board full-time with NBC. I had a couple of cases left over that I ended up getting rid of and resolving within six or seven months after that. I do not miss it. I'm not saying people shouldn't practice law. It's a noble profession. But 18 years of it was enough. An hour, what are we, an hour or so today, that's enough as well. I got to run. We'll do this tomorrow or Thursday. Thanks for your feedback. Thanks for your questions. Thanks for listening. And check us out tomorrow morning, PFT Live. Chris Sims and Big Cat. I'm sure we'll be talking about Russell Wilson. We'll be talking about the AAF. We'll be talking about a lot of things. And hopefully you'll be checking it out. Have a great day. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. 
So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.